0: Starring B. Laday in. But Ma, that's my favorite movie. Oh well, all right. But don't you spend too much time in front of that TV? Do you hear me? Yes, Ma. Welcome to my podcast. But Ma, that's my favorite movie, and I am your host, B. Laday. So if you're new to this podcast, what I do is introduce movies to you by having a different theme each episode. I'll talk about two movies that have a plot that is centered around the subject of the theme for that episode. I'll introduce the movies by giving a summary of the beginning of the movie up until the major plot point. Today's episode is titled, But Ma, That's My Favorite Iconic Movie. So you may be wondering, What is an iconic movie? And I'll tell you in just a bit. What I want to do first is let you know about our social media and our website. So firstly, we are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So please, if you aren't already, or if you are a new listener, go ahead and follow our social media pages for a sneak peek about upcoming episodes. And I actually... Do that with a game called Guess the Movie Slash Theme. My website is com. You can write reviews on there, give movie or theme suggestions, and more. All of the handles to the social media and link to the website are in the show notes slash description box below make sure if you're loving the content to go ahead and shout us out by tagging any of our social media pages or by giving us a review on the Apple podcast slash my website. And if you do, you'll get a shout out on one of my episodes. Now, today's theme is iconic movies. So to me, what I mean by an an iconic movie is that it's a movie that transcends time and has some element of it that people tend to recreate. It can either be because of the characters, maybe the clothing, the dialogue, the space that they're in, or it could just be the content itself. It's something about the movie that makes it relevant no matter how long ago it was made. So let's go ahead and get into the two movies we're going to talk about today. And let's start with the first one. Lights. Camera. Action. Hello. My name is Ingo Montana. You killed my father. Prepare to die. All right. That quote is by Ingo Montoya from the movie Princess Bride. Now this movie is very iconic. I remember when I went to acting school and one of the teachers had said that this was a movie that we must watch. This was a must watch movie. And I've heard it from other people as well about how much they loved this movie. Now, even my father, who has been on my podcast before. He loves this movie and he even told me to watch it. So I've heard from so many different people that this is a movie to watch. So I felt it was very appropriate, of course, at some point to talk about this movie on my podcast. So I have not seen it previously. And I did try watching it a couple years ago. And y'all are probably going to kill me. Y'all are going to come for my neck, okay? Because I fell asleep on it. And I really wasn't that interested in it. Because as I was like 20 minutes into the movie, it just wasn't doing it for me. And sometimes with these classic movies or these iconic movies, I try to figure out what is so likable about it? Why are people so interested? Why do people love this movie so much? And I think when I'm trying to rack my brain, and I'm sitting in there the whole time, like what makes this movie special? What makes this movie special? What makes this movie special? I'm not enjoying what I'm watching. And I will admit with the movies in this episode, it took me a couple times to actually watch it. So this one in particular, I was very curious and I wanted another opinion. I wanted to know from a different perspective, what made this movie so great? And I actually came across this article that is on the Collider website and I felt the review or the explanation of what makes this movie so great felt appropriate So I want to go ahead and share a little bit from this article that was written by Vanny Mancuso. All right, here we go. First off, it's actually about four or five perfect films in one directed by Rob Reiner from a script by William Goldman, which he adapted his book. The Princess Bride is a wash buckling fantasy adventure and a blazing love story and a farcical comedy, and kind of a satire, all wrapped around a frame story that doubles as a fable about the ageless nature of love and life. A plot synopsis doesn't give justice to a few things, though. For one, William Goldman's script is the most quotable of all time, maybe equal to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, written by William Goldman. Then there's a cast so blindingly charming it deserves its own warning from the CDC for anyone prone to fainting spells. But what sets Princess Bride on its singularly unique pedestal is the juggling act pulled off by Reiner and Co., It's hard to illustrate without just watching the film how accurately all of these genres listed above could accurately describe the film, but somehow all at once separately at the same time. It's weird to describe something as purely joyous as The Princess Bride as a well-oiled machine, but everything in the finished product performs so well because of the cog chugging along beside it. The cheesier stuff works because, hey, this is a children's fantasy story. The darker, more adult themes also work because it's a children fantasy story being used to illustrate a point about growing up. Any critique of one aspect of the film just bounces off another that works too well. For example, the fact that Andre the Giant is a straight-up terrible actor doesn't matter at all because, wow, he's a literal giant and the same physical magnetism that turned him into a folk hero makes every garbled word from his mouth sound endearing. Andre the Giant is a bad actor who I unironically think deserved an Academy Award nomination for The Princess Bride. But... It's the structure of the film that turns its comfort watch status to timeless. Plenty of films are great, but The Princess Bride is designed to be great across generations. The idea of a grandparent imparting knowledge with a story so dazzling the grandchild doesn't even notice is a potent one. It's like a getaway drug in film form. As a kid, it's enough to just watch the sword fight between Wesley and Indigo, still dazzling a piece of choreography to this day without appreciating just how razor quick the banter is between blade clings. When you're young, the lesson is about love being unbeatable. When you're just a little older, the line that sticks in your head is, who says life is fair? Where is that written? All right, so that's the end of that excerpt from that article. And what I definitely agree with and what my initial opinion of what made this particular movie iconic was the dialogue. So when I read that article and when they mentioned about how this is one of the most quotable movies, I definitely agreed with that. And the fact that it mentioned how there were so many genres mixed in one and how everything just worked and how what I get from it is that that's not an easy task to do, to take so many different genres and then to not make it um, just overall cheesy or for it to just overall be bad. Um, But this movie just worked. And so I thought that was pretty cool. I got a little bit of a better understanding of what made this movie so great. Um, and I will be honest with you, once I turned off the switch of trying to find what was so great about this movie, I did enjoy it and I got through it and I was like, okay, this movie is not that bad. Um, and and I, I saw the likability of it and um, yeah, so, so I totally get it guys. All right, so this movie was released October 9th, 1987. And like I mentioned before, uh, this movie is directed by Rob Reiner, who also directed movies like A Few Good Men and When Harry Met Sally. And he also directed some very uh, notable and mainstream television shows as well. And this movie is based on the book with the same title, And the author and writer of this screenplay is William Goldman. And William Goldman also wrote novels like The Temple of Gold, Boys and Girls Together, Soldier in the Rain, and much more. And he actually wrote screenplays such as Chaplin, which is the story about Charlie Chaplin, and All the President's Men. So I thought that was very interesting. So not only is he a novelist, but he's also a freaking screenwriter. So that's cool. All right, let's go ahead and get into the summary. So, so this, so if y'all have been waiting to hear about this iconic movie, if I have been pumping you up thus far, you're about to get what this movie is about. Well, not all about, but just up until, like I said, the major plot point. All right. So a grandpa visits his grandson and brings him a gift. The gift is a book. At first, the grandson isn't impressed because he's from the era of watching TV and playing video games. So books are boring, right? But the grandpa lets him know this book has a lot of elements like romance, escapes, monsters, and more. So this does capture the grandson's attention and he decides he wants to hear it. So the grandpa proceeds to start reading the book and so the story starts off with a woman named Buttercup who lives on a farm and takes pride in bossing around the farm boy named Wesley. She would order him to always do things on the farm and his response would always be, as you wish, which really meant, I love you. And when she realizes that that is what that phrase meant, she realizes that she loves him as well. So one day they share a kiss and it's made clear that they love each other. Now, Wesley had no money to marry her, so he had to leave to go find his fortune across the sea to be able to marry her. Now, some time passes, and Buttercup finds out that Wesley never made it to his destination. His ship was attacked by pirates, and he was murdered. This upsets Buttercup and causes her to never sleep or eat and vow to never love again. Five years later, the Prince of Florin, who is Humperdinck, reveals his bride-to-be Willby Buttercup. Now, Buttercup did not love him, but she didn't have a choice because he gets to choose whoever he wants to be his bride. The only thing that made her happy was her daily rides on her horse. So one day, Buttercup is riding her horse when she stumbles upon three men in the woods. One of the men asks her if there's a town nearby, to which she replies, no, there isn't one for like miles. So this makes it easy for them to kidnap her. Now there's a giant man, literally a giant, and he ends up putting her to sleep by pushing a pressure point on her neck. And then after that, we hear the man who we learn is Vinzini, who was the one who asked her about if there was a town nearby. He's discussing his plans with the two other men. And the two other men are Enigo and Fezique. So what Vanzini wants to do is start a war between two countries that are across from each other. He wants the Prince of Florin to think someone from the country Gilder has kidnapped his bride-to-be. So in the meantime, they plan to reside in the cliffs while their plan works out. Now, as they're traveling to their destination, they do notice a boat following some miles behind them. And Vinzini thinks nothing of it, but little do they know they're in for more than they are bargained for. And of course, a good story would not be good without a awesome plot twist, which this movie has. And I wasn't expecting that. Um, so yeah, this movie was very fun. It is funny. And um, it just has all of the elements, like the article has said um, that anyone would be interested in seeing. Like you like adventure, you got that. You like comedy, you got that. You got romance, you got that. Uh, you like, you know, fighting choreography. Well, it's not fighting, but the uh, swordplay choreography, you got that. You got want good dialogue, you got that. So there's just a lot of great things about this film. And let's go ahead and get into the cast that we have here. So we have Carrie Elwis who was also in The Informant and Twister. Next, we have Mandy Patinkin, who plays Indigo Montoya. And he was also in Dick Tracy and Alienation. Next, we have Chris Sarandon, who also played in Dog Day Afternoon and Child's Play. Next, we have Christopher Guest, who plays Count Regine. And he was in This Is Spinal Tap and A Mighty Wind. Next, we have Wallace Shawn, who plays Vinzini. He was in Clueless, which we talked about in, I believe, episode five. But, Ma, that's my favorite nostalgic movie. And he also did a voice on Toy Story. Next, we have Andre the Giant, who plays Fezzik. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man, and he was a regular on WWF. Uh, Next, we have Fred Savage, who plays the grandson. He was in The Wonder Years and Little Monsters. Next, we have Robin Wright, who plays the Princess Bride, and she was in Forrest Gump and Unbreakable. Then we have Peter Falk, who plays the grandfather, and he is in Columbo, which... I have good memories of that TV series because I remember watching a little bit of like a marathon of that series with my grandma. So I will always cherish that. And, and he was also in Murder by Death. Then we have Billy Crystal who plays Miracle Max. He was in City Slickers and When Harry Met Sally. And then we have Carol Kane who plays Valerie. She was in the Adams Family Values and Jawbreaker which was in the teen episode, but Ma, that's my favorite teen movie. Um, she played the principal in that film. And last but not least, we have Mel Smith, who plays the albino, and he was in National Lampoon's European Vacation and Brain Donors. Now on to the behind-the-scenes information. So the first piece we have here is when Count Rugen hits Wesley over the head Carrie Elwes told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit him hard enough to shut down production for a day while Elwes went to the hospital. So that's when being real goes wrong, (laughs) I guess you could say. All right, the second piece we have here, according to author William Goldman, when he was first trying to get the movie made in the 1970s, a then unknown Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to play Fezzik And he was strongly being considered because Goldman could never get his first choice, Andre the Giant, to read for the role. By the time the movie was made, about 12 years later, Schwarzenegger was such a big star, they couldn't even afford him. Andre was cast after all, and the two big men had gone on to become friends. All right, the third piece of information we got here. The giant rodents were created with diminutive actors inside rat suits. On the day Wesley was supposed to wrestle the main actor, Danny Blackner, he was nowhere to be found. Finally, Blackner arrived on set with a long story about being pulled over for speeding the night prior on his way home from the bar and subsequently being put in jail for a few hours for drinking after the police officer didn't believe his story about having to work as an actor slash stuntman playing a rat. That's definitely going to be a funny story. He's going to be able to tell his grandkids. (laughs) All right. The fourth piece of information we have, despite his character, Fesnick's almost superhuman strength... Andre the Giant's back problems at the time prevented him from actually lifting anything heavy. Robin Wright had to be attached to wires in the scene where Buttercup jumps from the castle window into Fesnick's arms because he couldn't support her himself. And that is very ironic because you assume someone as big as Andre, who is considered a giant, would be able to pick up anything, lift anything, you know, carry the most heaviest stuff. But what we don't realize is like their structure of their body does affect their bones. And I think it has to do with the fact that one humans are supposed to be built like that, that big. And so there's like a downside to it, you know? And, um, unfortunately he did have that issue with his back and, that's terrible to hear because I can only imagine the pain that he went through. Um, But luckily they were able to, you know, figure out how to make things work where it still gave us the illusion, you know, that he was this big, strong guy. And the last piece of information that we have is in order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times, Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin, Trained for months with Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson, who between them had both been in the Olympics, worked on Bond, Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Star Wars films, and coached Errol Flynn and Burt Lancaster. Every spare moment on set was spent practicing. Eventually, when they showed Rob Reiner the sword fight for the movie... He was underwhelmed and requested that it be at least three minutes long rather than the current one minute. They added steps to the set, watched more swashbuckling movies for inspiration, re-choreographed the scene. It ended up with a three minute and 10 second fight, which took the better part of the week to film from all the angles. And I find it so interesting how long it can take to film just one scene. A scene that only takes a minute to watch took like a couple days or a week or maybe two weeks to film. It's absolutely fascinating to me and I love it. I don't know about y'all, but things like that I, I love and that's exactly why I want to be in the business and that's why that's my goal to, you know, end up being a filmmaker. But I digress. All right, let's go ahead and get into the second movie we have here. So let's go ahead and continue with our second movie. Lights, camera, action. He's all right. Aren't you, Cat? Poor Cat. Poor slob. Poor slob without a name. The way I see it, I haven't got the right to give him one. We don't belong to each other. We just took up one day by the river. I don't want to own anything until I find a place where me and things go together. I'm not sure where that is, but I know what it's like. It's like Tiffany's. And that quote is by Holly Golightly from the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. And let me tell you guys, I was super, super pumped to talk about this movie because I've always heard the name never watched the movie before this episode and I knew this would be a perfect moment to go ahead and watch this movie in order to you know tell y'all about it just in case y'all haven't seen the movie and um the iconic element of this movie it's the black dress the pearls the long gloves the updo the sunglasses everyone knows the look that Audrey Hepburn had in this movie. People constantly recreate it as a costume. People do photo shoots, dressing like it. People reference this outfit in modern day all the time. So this is definitely an iconic movie because of that dress. And I will tell you this, I didn't know what to expect when I went into this movie. I had no idea. I didn't even want to read like the summary or synopsis of this movie beforehand. I just wanted to watch it because, frankly, I never looked it up before to see what it was about. I just always heard the name. And, um, of course, we've heard about the jewelry, Tiffany's jewelry as well. And so, yeah, I was just very just curious about what this movie was about. So I was excited to be able to watch it for this episode. Now, this movie was released October 6, 1961. Now, mind you, the previous movie that we talked about was released October 9th. Now, let me tell you about synchronicity and how I didn't even plan that. And I think it's very funny how when I'm planning movies, I'm not sure of the details of them. Well, initially I come up with the theme. And then I pick the movies to that go with that theme. So I start with the theme first. Now, sometimes I'll start with the movies. In this case, I started with the movies and then I created the theme. And then the fact that these movies were released around the same time, I totally didn't plan that. But I love when that happens because it's like, y'all were meant to be paired together. All right, the writer of this screenplay is George Axelrod, who also wrote Seven Year Itch and Bus Stop, But this movie is based on the book by Truman Capote, who also wrote Other Voices, Other Rooms, and In Cold Blood. Now, what is interesting about the author of the book is that there is actually a movie titled Capote, which is centered around the author of this book, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But it's about him writing a book... Um, about a about the murder of a family, and he's doing research on it, and then he forms a relationship with one of the killers. Now, mind you, a long time ago, my um, uncle he was trying to get me to watch this movie and Charlie Wilson's War, and I remember I watched Charlie Wilson's War, wasn't interested. I think I tried watching this one, couldn't get into it, but I think with age comes patience. And as you're living life, you have a better understanding of life. Of course, your taste begins to change in just different aspects of your life, like clothing, food, uh, entertainment. And so I think I would have a better appreciation now. But I just think it's funny that a long time ago, I was recommended to watch this movie. And all these years later, I'm talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's, didn't have any idea that, you know, Capote actually wrote that novel and so I don't know I feel like some things just go full circle so though that is definitely a movie I want to watch and talk about as well in the future now the director of this movie is Blake Edwards who also directed the Pink Panther Strikes Again and the Return of the Pink Panther now let's get into the summary of the movie So a woman gets out of a taxi and goes to admire the Tiffany & Co. window display. And she's eating what looks to be like a crepe and drinking coffee and seems to be at peace. And she is also wearing the iconic black gown, sunglasses, pearls, and long gloves with the updo. Now this woman of course is Audrey Hepburn who is playing Holly Golightly. So she ends up strolling down the sidewalk until she ends up in a neighborhood. She goes up to an apartment, but as she is buzzing to be let in, a man chases her inside, asking why he hasn't seen her. She does not seem very interested in him, but he's seeming desperate for her attention. So the landlord lets her in and he is shouting at her. He's very upset because she woke him up out of his sleep. So once she gets inside of the building, she goes to her apartment, the door, And the guy who we find out is Sid is still bothering her, but she's actually able to slip away and get into her apartment. So this makes the guy mad because he complains how basically he paid for her and her friends and he didn't even know who her friends were, but he still paid for them. And then when she went off to the powder room, he gave her like 50 bucks. Now this upsets the landlord even more because this guy is like banging on her door and he's begging her to, you know... Basically, he feels like he has rights to her because he's paid for her. So he's like, you know, shouting to her door to her. And this upsets the landlord even more. And so she ends up coming back out of her apartment. And the guy said he'd end up leaving. So the landlord runs him off. Holly comes back out of her apartment and she tries to ease the anger of the landlord by telling him she'll let him take pictures of her because apparently this landlord is a photographer. He's an artist himself. And so this actually calms him down. And so she ends up going inside and everything is fine. And she's able to go to sleep because she's been out all night up until the morning. Now, Holly is asleep when she hears the buzzer. So she ends up waking up, letting this man in. And he's actually... Moving to these apartments. So he is new. And he ends up explaining to Holly why he buzzed in because he didn't have a downstairs key, thinks he has an upstairs key, and that's why he couldn't get the door open. So she really doesn't mind. This doesn't upset her. And so she's like, oh, okay, well, bye. And then he asks her if he can use her phone, which she says, yeah. And so he goes into her apartment and he notices it looks kind of empty and not decorated. Basically, something you wouldn't expect a woman's place to look like. Like I'm not trying to be uh stereotypical, but normally, you know, women are known for decorating their apartments, making it look cute, full, uh, you know, decorated. And she didn't have that. And so he asked if she had moved in and she said, No, I've lived here for a year. And then Holly tells him she doesn't feel like she really belongs to anything and that's why she has a cat with no name, and her place looks the way it does. She also says the only happiness she gets is from Tiffany. She reveals a lot about herself to this man she's only just met. And she talks about how she feels, which to me sounds like she has a hard time committing to anything, and she's like a go-with-the-win kind of girl. So the meeting is cut when she has to go meet with this man that she gets paid to visit in prison. And as Holly is off downstairs, the man follows her and is curious f- if what she's doing is legal, and she lets him know that, uh, pretty much she's fine. She's been doing it for a long time. Now, in trying to get a taxi, one stops for her, which has a woman inside who greets the man. And so, this man, his name is Paul, and he introduces the woman that comes out of the taxi to Holly as his decorator. Um, but you can kind of tell that they seem a lot more cozy than being work associates, right? And so the decorator's name is Mrs. Felinson, and she doesn't seem too enthused to be meeting Holly. And so she pretty much ignores her and proceeds to embrace Paul. So Holly rushes off cause you know, she has to go now that night Holly is followed by another man once again, wanting her attention, but once again, she's ignoring this guy too. So she ends up changing into a robe and she ends up going like on the fire escape and going up, there to get to paul's apartment and she looks in the window and she sees the decorator is actually still there but she looks like she's about to leave and paul's in bed seemingly naked and asleep so the decorator leaves money and heads out holly opens his window she ends up waking him up and reintroducing herself and lets herself into his room now at first he's hesitant for her to be there because he's kind of naked and and in bed and it's at night but um there's something about her that Eases his tension. So they begin to like get to know each other. Like she asks him questions about his career. He kind of is inquisitive about her life as she brings stuff up. And I feel from her that she's super open to sharing details of her life. She's super trusting. She's this free bird type of person. And even though Paul doesn't seem to be so open, um, he seems a bit guarded, but at the same time, she still has a way of getting him to open up to her. And he has this interest to hear what she has to say, because the dynamic is that she talks and he listens, but he doesn't really seem bothered by it. And, um, she actually ends up sleeping over for a bit that night, which he ends up not minding. And Holly is already calling him a friend. And he doesn't even reject the idea like, oh, we barely know each other. But, you know, you're calling me a friend like, no, that's not what this is. But he accepts it. Now, what ends up happening is Paul is trying to find inspiration to write while he's also juggling an affair with a married woman. And Holly and him begin to get close. But Holly has a secret and things that she is hiding from her past. So once again, I really did not know what to expect from this movie. And it surprised me. It was way different than I thought it was going to be. And I know I may sound silly and probably naive, but I was really expecting a scene of them eating breakfast at Tiffany's. But I can obviously tell that the title has a more metaphorical meaning. All right, let's go ahead and get into the cast here. All right, so we have Audrey Hepburn, who plays Holly Golightly. She plays in My Fair Lady and Roman Holiday. Next, we have George Peppard, who plays Paul Varjak, and he was in The Blue Max and The Carpetbaggers. We have Patricia Neal, who plays Mrs. Fellison, and she was in HUD and The Day the Earth Stood Still. Then next, we have... Buddy Epson, who plays Doc Golightly. He was in the Beverly Hillbillies and Born to Dance. Next, we have Martin Balsam, who plays O.J. Beerman. He was in Psycho and All President's Men. Uh, Then we have Jose Luis Villalonga, who plays himself. And he was also in Juliet of the Spirits and Darling. Then we have John McGiver, who plays Tiffany Sellsman. He was in Mr. Terrific and Midnight Cowboy. And then last but not least, we have Alan Reed, who plays Sally Tomato, and he was in The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is the 1946 version, and he did a voice in Lady in The Tramp. Now to the behind the scenes information. So the first piece we have here is Audrey Hepburn's salary for the film was $750,000, making her the highest paid actress per film at the time. The next piece we have is Holly Golightly wears the same dresses all the way through the movie, simply changing the accessories to give each outfit a different look. Her black shift dress features through the movie at least four times. The third piece of information that we have is for the scene in which Holly throws a wild party in her apartment. Blake Edwards wanted to capture the free-willing lifestyle of Holly and her New York friends using an intricate series of visual gags. Edwards ordered up cases of real champagne and let the bubbly flow among the actors, allowing everyone to contribute ideas of outrageous behavior. And I bet you those are just the funnest scenes to see people really get drunk and then act silly because people can just come up with things you probably couldn't even imagine. All right, the fourth piece we have here is the famous black dress worn by Audrey Hepburn in the opening scenes of this movie was sold for 807000 on December 4th, 2006 at Christie's Auction House in London, making it the second most expensive piece of movie memorabilia ever sold. The first is the Best Picture Oscar for Gone with the Wind. And we've talked about Gone with the Wind on this podcast, which is episode 10. All right, the fifth piece of information we have in the 2006 short documentary, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Making of a Classic, Blake Edwards said that when the movie was made, he didn't think about the implications of casting an actor of European heritage, Mickey Rooney, in a role as a Japanese person. But, And he quotes, looking back, I wish I had never done it and I would give anything to be able to recast it. And I remember hearing about that role being portrayed in this movie before I've seen it. So yes, it would be very problematic, the fact that, Instead of just getting a Japanese person to play that character, they decided to take um, someone who is white, paint them up and make them a caricature of a Japanese person. So that is one of the most problematic parts of this movie. Um, So I'm not sure how that is received today. I know the black dress just takes over everything, so people don't really talk about that part of it. But yeah, that, that was pretty bad. So the sixth piece of information that we have is that this movie's poster was ranked number 18 of the 25 best movie posters ever by Premiere. And I had no idea that that was even a thing, but that is very interesting. All right, the seventh piece of information we have in September 2017, Tiffany & Co. bought the original 1961 working script, with deleted scenes and notes in Hepburn's handwriting for about 846619 It was at the Christie's auction once again in the House of London and selling for more than the second and third highest items in the auction that day combined. It's the most expensive film script ever bought at an auction. And the eighth and last piece of information we have and I always think this is interesting, how titles of movies are translated in different countries. And this movie in France is known as Diamonds on Toast. So I guess, I, I wonder how, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's isn't able to translate there, or do they just kind of take the concept of the movie and they create their own title? I guess, you know, words are um, not always transferable or mean the same thing in different places, so. That's very interesting. All right. Well, that is all that I have for the two movies today. Go ahead. And if you are interested in watching these movies or if you have watched these movies before, comment below and share your thoughts about these movies. Let me know if you liked them or if you have suggestions of movies that could be related to this theme. Now, I want to go ahead and thank my listeners. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. You're a real one, period. And if you're a new listener, thank you so much for stopping by and giving my podcast a chance. I hope you stay and listen to some more episodes. Well, you know what time it is. The show is over. The credits are rolling and I'll see you at the next showtime.